It's another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Silva, here on this Sunday, September the 18th. Of course, you can listen to the show all the time at MetsMorizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can check out the uh, the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcasting service you use. We're pretty much on all of them. And if we're not on one of them, let me know, and I'll get on there. It's not that hard. Hope everybody's doing well. You're probably just... uh, been enjoying another great weekend. Uh, fall in the air, starting to get a little bit cool. The first time you get that little little bit of humidity in the in, in, in the middle of the day, but you get that first little chill because October baseball is right around the corner, and uh, the Mets are coming off a sweep of the Twins, week two of the NFL season. I'm sure you're uh, in the midst of either fantasy euphoria or fantasy hell. I don't know where I'm at with that because it seems like it changes. Hour to hour. Sometimes I feel good about my team. Sometimes I don't feel good about my teams. But anyway, you tuned in to hear about the Mets and uh, have an interesting show for you today in a little bit. Uh, first time guest of the show. He's had a site. He's been around a while, and I've known him for quite some time. Joe Janis. Joe used to be a Division One pitcher, a Division One college coach, pitching coach. Uh, has a site, MetsToday.com. Doesn't do as much Mets activity there anymore uh, unless it has to do with uh, in conjunction with his fixingpitchers.com website very passionate about pitching pitching mechanics keeping pitchers healthy and what better time to talk about those topics than um, today after you know less than 24 hours or about 24 hours ago everyone got the news that Jacob deGrom would be out for the rest of the year with an odd injury the uh, ulnar nerve, the the ligament that uh, essentially, and I'm, I'm far from a medical person, so forgive me if you are, and, and you're, I guess, uh, raising an eyebrow to how, how horribly can he describe this, but basically the ligament that the UCL in your elbow attaches, it goes all the way down your forearm, so I think if you take your two fingers, your middle fingers, and you and you flex them, your middle finger, and then I guess uh, the digit to the to the to the left, and you flex them, that's, you pretty much see that's the ligament we're talking about. And it seems like there's a bit of a numbness going on in that uh, particular area. You know, numbness in the fingers, and I guess there's some scar t- tissue in that area that DeGrom is claiming is part of uh, his Tommy John surgery, which he had about six years ago. Still odd. Look, you know, Joe's going to come on. We're going to talk about why he thinks the Mets are kind of off and Major League Baseball's kind of off on keeping pitchers healthy. And he's got some real fundamentals. Some of them are heady science-related research and ideas, but there's some very simple basic principles, and one that can be tied into Bartolo Colon and what Bartolo Colon is doing that perhaps hold the key to helping keep this staff together a little bit better in the future. Because if the staff was together, I think everybody would feel a hell of a lot better about the Mets' chances in the postseason, especially after how well they've played since about mid to late August. So Joe will be joining me in just a little bit, and we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the Mets pitchers. And I know we've done this before. Jeff Passan was on, and he wrote a book called uh, The Arm, and he will, went into Tommy John surgery. And there's tons of talk about this, and I don't think anyone has the answer, and, and we're certainly not going to get that today, but it's a big topic. So rather than just complain and, and talk about uh, Jacob deGrom and, and, and his injury, let's really look under the hood and see what, you know what can the Mets do. And Joe has some interesting ideas, and – We'll reference a piece that he wrote on MetsToday.com back in early September before all of this uh, uh, came about. So he'll join me in a little bit. Of course, lots going on in Metsville, and I will get to 
the Wally Backman situation. I know it's a, quite a few days old. It's almost a week old. But I've been very passionate about Wally's case in this organization. Um, I've had conversations both on the air and off the air with Wally in the past. Not this week. I, I did not catch up with Wally this week. Although back in the summer, I had spoken to someone in minor, minor league baseball, had a, a long conversation with Wally. And uh, I'm not really surprised to, to hear what I heard. So I'll get to that. And, uh, and of course, we'll have Joe. And, and we have a lot to talk about. So let's, uh, let's get right to it. Um, look, the Mets are going to make the playoffs. And, I, and, I, and it's funny because I've, I've wavered on this back and forth. And those who listen to the podcast each week probably are like, see, I told you so. But here's the thing. I said on paper earlier in the season – that it was hard for me to believe that the Mets were not going to make the playoffs because they, on paper, were a team that was good enough to be there and should be there. And even with the injuries, I never wavered from that. If you remember when Sandy Alderson made what I called a, a, a subtle missive at the All-Star break that he expects this team to make the playoffs, there was already some injuries in the queue there. You had Matt Harvey who was out. Uh, Mats and Syndergaard had their bone spur issues. You didn't know anything about DeGrom, but you knew something was off from time to time. Uh, you know, David Wright already had been out. So the Mets already had some issues at that point. So it wasn't like, uh, uh, you know, the, the Mets were this completely healthy team. Now, even when things started to go south in July into early August, and, and then that's when my tune had changed, and especially uh, right after the trade deadline, I said, look, this team is being asked now, if you really want to be realistic, the 88 to 90 wins, I think it was somewhere around 620 baseball, it was certainly over 600 baseball they needed to play in order to make the playoffs. I'm like, guys, they haven't done that in months. Since they started hot in April, since May 1st at that point, that was a team that was a sub-500, at best, 500 team. When you have three, four months of that kind of sample, hard for me to believe that this was a team that was all, all of a sudden going to kick it into the gear, including the fact that the manager has at times made some very questionable moves. Um, I felt they didn't necessarily... Uh, have the drive day in and day out to make that push. I didn't see it. There was a lot of games I felt that they just got behind and, and took off. And, um, you know, you had Jay Bruce coming in struggling, and I was like, I just didn't think this team, all the signs were pointing to this being one of those years where it was just not going to happen. And that does that does happen. That is the case. And it's a shame, especially now when you have these short windows with teams to win. And then something crazy happened. We called them the replacement Mets, the Seth Lugos, the Robert Gazelmans came in and stepped up. And now you've got T.J. Rivera coming in. And all of a sudden now, I don't think anybody's talking about, oh, man, we don't have Neil Walker right now. Uh, and, I, and I basically said that a couple of weeks ago, Sandy Alderson's drafts from 2011, 2012, uh, the, the, the value uh, signings, the, the Josh Smokers, it was time for them to, to step up. This isn't Omar Minaya's Mats and... DeGrom and Harvey, you know, you're not going to be able to rely on those guys now. And these guys have. And uh, in order for the Mets to equal last year's record of 1972, they got to go 10-3 and the rest of the way, which, by the way, I think assures them not only, only of a playoff spot, but I think it assures them of a, of, a, of a home game in the wild card playing game, which is going to be a tough game regardless of who you play. And I think 10-3 and is what they should. That should be what they're striving for. Now, you go out, you play a game – and you just play that game. And even though they swept the Twins, they didn't really hit again this weekend. And sure, they had a third of their starting lineup on the bench today with a, I thought, somewhat peculiar way of managing where Terry Collins almost played it like it was a, 
a Sunday in May rather than in September, but it worked out. So they didn't hit really all weekend with the full lineup, without the full lineup. They let the Twins off the hook. The Twins are, as they pointed out on the broadcast, not a horrible offensive team. They're seventh in the American League, but geez, I got to tell you, if that team is seventh in the American League in hitting, either the Mets just are that dominant offensively, uh, excuse me, pitching-wise, or uh, Twins just had a bad weekend because I got to tell you, I didn't see any hitter other than Dozier. Uh, that really uh, scared me in the line. I, I shouldn't say that. Dozier, Dozier certainly. You also could make the uh, the case that Buxton has something there. Joe Maurer is a shell of his former self. Um, I'm trying to think who else could I really. Uh, there was the the the. Jeez, uh, I'm, I'm I'm Kenny Vargas. That was the guy I was thinking of. He has a little bit of pop. I shouldn't say that. And of course, I should note that Miguel Sano was uh, or Miguel Sano, I should say. Uh, was not in the lineup. So it, it, you have a big bat like that missing in the lineup. That does make a difference. So anyway, uh, point being is that as bad as the Twins are, and they're bad, they're bad more for the pitching than for the offense. So uh, Mets score nine runs over the weekend, but uh, they still uh, are able to uh, come away victorious. You know, Twins, even pitching-wise, you're looking at a team, they're, they are pretty bad. They have an ERA over uh, over five. They're a team that's scoring, wow, they're scoring, they're evening up over five runs a game in their ERA, and then they're scoring the Twins. Uh, a little over uh, four and a half runs a game. So anyway, uh, I'm uh, kind of getting off the point here. But uh, the Mets sweep, I think 10-3 and three is in their grasp. They have uh, six of those games uh, out of the final 13 on the road, seven at home. I said, uh, thinking at the beginning of the homestand, I said they should go. Well, they really need to go 9-1 and one if they're going to hit 90. See, 90 to me is that number that that's going to do it. I'm not saying 88 won't do it. I'm not saying 89 won't do it. Shoot, I don't think 87 is a problem. But if I think you don't want those final days of the regular season to be that big of a deal, 90. 90 is the number, and I think it's very much in reach, which is amazing that this team, after how they played, how they were under 500 in August at one point, would equal last year's team's record. So it's been a a wild and wacky, uh, wacky season. Now, with the news of DeGrom out... How far can this team go? And that's the thing. I mean, I I was in the ballpark yesterday, and the crowd was kind of not into it. I, I the, the thing I feel a little bit is I'm not sure there's a belief with the fan base that this team could go far. Maybe that'll change come the bell ringing for October baseball, but I don't get the sense. There's not that intensity. Maybe it was just me. I was in the ballpark yesterday. You know, I looked at the crowd. Today. The crowds aren't bad. I mean, yesterday's crowd was really good, but they had a giveaway with the Grom hair hat. And, um, you know, maybe they just don't have a belief in the T.J. Rivera's of the world. And if they come in and they, they see Josh Smoker and, uh, uh, you know, guys like that, uh, Seth Lugo, uh, even getting uh, Eric Goodell and, and Gabriel Yanoa coming in. And it, it just – it feels – you look at these rosters and, the, and these box scores – and it almost feels like the Mets are playing out the string, but they're not. And with DeGrom out, now you're looking at a situation where essentially the Mets rotation the rest of the way. Because I'm not even going to put Mats into the conversation until I see something like him on the mound. And him on the mound and actually going out there and not walking off the mound after a few pitches. It's going to be Syndergaard. It's going to be Cologne. It's going to be Gazelman. It's going to be Lugo. Those are your four starters. And that is a big downgrade from what you had going into the postseason a year ago. However, 
Let me say, however, I think the bullpen is a hell of a lot better. You've got Familia like you did last year. Now you actually have a bridge to Familia where you don't have to uh, stretch out your starters or even pitch Familia two innings with Addison Reed. Uh, Josh Smoker is starting to give you the feeling that he might be able to be put in to sixth or seventh inning higher leverage situations. He's averaging 15 strikeouts per nine innings. That's serious. That's a serious uh, situation. And then you have a veteran like Fernando Salas who, you know, I don't know. I, I, he's, had, he's been a closer before. He pitched for the, in the Cardinals organization as their closer. Uh, so he's got some experience. I, I think he certainly is hittable. Um, but I think he's a better option than uh, Hansel Robles. He's certainly a better option than Jim Henderson, who uh, just can't seem to stay healthy. I mean, the guy you want to keep away from all this is Robles. But with those four arms, and then you had Blevins, who now is getting big outs at the end of the ball game. You got two lefties. You got your bridge. You've got Salas. You've got a bullpen that could compete in the playoffs. So all you really need is six innings and change, at least six innings, which all these guys can give you. And even though it's a small sample, and like I say, I can't go on Twitter and criticize the Yankees and their young players and say, oh, those guys, you know, give me 500 at-bats or give me a year till I believe in them. have to say the same thing for Lugo Gazelman. I've got to see them go around the league a couple of times. But, hey, don't discount young players who are hungry, looking to prove themselves, and put, a position, put in a position where they can earn a job. Think about how unlikely it would be for T.J. Rivera. T.J. Rivera could be earning a big league job. Here's a guy that was not regarded in the organization at all. So there's, there's a lot of things to be said when those kind of players are put in that position. Um, they may not look like Neil Walker. They may not look and smell like Jacob DeGrom and Matt Harvey. And certainly the ceiling isn't there. It's going to be hard for me to say that Seth Lugo has the same ceiling as a Matt Harvey. Because right now you can't say that. Um, whereas if Matt Harvey or if DeGrom or, or if Matt's are in there, you know those guys can match an Arietta or a Lester pitch for pitch in a postseason situation. So my thing is this. I think you go out, and, you, and I said this a few weeks ago, you have some fun with this as fans. If the Mets get a home game at City Field and they win that home game and they go and face the Cubs, go out there. It's house money. Nobody is thinking that you can win. It was interesting because last year when the Mets played the Cubs in the NLCS after they won that great series against the Dodgers, I said to everybody, and it was such a quick turnaround because the Mets had won the game on a Thursday night. And then they were not able to – they had the Friday off, and the series started Saturday. There wasn't a lot leading up to it. But I said the world is going to be rooting for the Cubs because the Cubs are those lovable losers. The, the narrative, the national media narrative is get the Cubs to the World Series because that's what the media wants. They want the feel-good story. Nobody's rooting for the Mets. And the Mets go out, and they, and they slam the Cubs that weekend in those two games. They didn't even give the narrative a chance to get off the ground. And by the time they get back to Chicago and they even thought about historic comebacks, uh, the Mets had gone up 3-0. They tried to give that whole, oh, you know, Theo's done it before. He could do it again. And the Mets just had not – they didn't even give the Cubs a chance to get the narrative off the ground. The pressure is all on the Cubs. The pressure is not going to be on the Mets. There's no, there's no pressure on this team anymore. That's a dangerous thing. Zero pressure. Nobody thinks they're going to win. Everybody's counting them out. They have a built-in excuse. The manager's probably safe. There is nothing 
that can be put into the Mets column that they are – they cannot be failures now. Well, I shouldn't say that. If they don't make the playoffs now, I think that they're going to be scorned a little bit because they have enough, and in, in the, the schedule's in their favor. But every bit of pressure is on the Cubs, and I'll tell you what. You get past the Cubs, the Dodgers, the, the Nats, I, even with the roster, even with the pitching the way it is, even though I have some questions about the offense, how it has these brownouts, you still should have enough to win in a short series. I'm not saying they will win. I'm saying they could compete and win. And once you go, once October 4th, October 5th comes, those playoff dates come when the, the calendar turns, that's no, the Mets are no longer a 90-win team. The Cubs are no longer whatever they're going to be, a 100-win team. It's 0-0. Zero and zero. Chavez Darno, whatever negativity from the regular season, it goes away. He has a big playoff series. Nobody cares about the regular season anymore. You know what? Daniel Murphy was Babe Ruth in the playoffs last year. Nobody thought about him as Daniel Murphy, who we knew him as, and he got a contract based on that. So there, and you, you know, there's a lot to be said about this. Have some fun with this, and um, you know, like I said, it's not a situation where I think you could say, "Wow, this is this feels like a Mets team that's going to be set up for a run." But was last year's team really set up for a run? They won the division at that point. They were going into a series facing Grinky and Kershaw. And I, I, I said, that's, I, that's, I really wanted them to have home field because I said it's going to be tough winning these games in L.A. And look, they went out and won it. They went out, they went out and won it. So, uh, you know, any, the, you get into the tournament. That's what this is about. And that's important for this organization. And what you really learned is that there's more depth in this organization. It may not be stars. T.J. Rivera may not be a star. Josh Smoker may not be the next Familia. There are component players that they could put on this roster that can uh, allow this team to go out and put its resources towards other things, and that is so important in today's game where the, the salaries are, are what they are. The one knock of Omar Manaya's tenure was that the Mets in a 25-man roster would have eight really elite players that would carry the other 17 and that you were filling in with the Ricky Ladays of the world and, uh, you know, Philip Umber, who wasn't ready yet, and Brian Lawrence making starts down the stretch. And that's why the Mets lost. They had no depth in the bullpen. They had no ability to go out because they didn't have anybody that they could bring up that could fill in. You had to either go out and get a veteran, and you were totally at the mercy of the market. And the Mets are not. The Mets didn't have the depth that they have built here through the draft, through some uh, value signings like a smoker. They're not where they are. They're probably look on the outside looking in. And indeed, these box scores that look like playing out the string box scores because of the names are not. So speaking, one last thing before we take a break and we get to Joe Janis, Wally Backman. Look, I'm not going to go into a long uh, tirade about Wally being fired and leaving the organization. I believe it at face value. Wally went on Mike Francesa's show, basically said, went on Michael K's show as well. I'm leaving because I don't see a future in the organization, and all I could tell you is this. Back in the summer, I spoke to someone that I'm very friendly with, very close with in minor league baseball, who had a long conversation with Wally Backman sometime in early to mid-July. And Wally made it very clear to this individual that he was with the Mets because of the ownership group, because of the Wilpons, not because of Sandy. He felt Sandy didn't like him. Uh, he was very critical of the fact that Dick Scott uh, was on the team uh, because he was more of a liaison for the front office, not that there was much value to him on the bench. 
I think Wally believes, not that he's knocking Dick Scott, he feels that because of what he's done, because he's shown that he can uh, help develop players, a lot of his teams overachieve. They may not all winning records, they may not all win championships, but he seems to maximize the most of the talent on the roster to get these players to be in positions where they can, with whatever their talent level is, be successful. And he knows that, and he believes that he knows how to manage a bullpen, which is severely lacking at the big league level. Even with 39 players on the roster, Terry Collins still seems to be goofy with his bullpen moves. And I think Wally at some point wanted to be told, hey, you are the guy that's going to be looked at as this in the organization. That means the manager in waiting, the bench coach. He wanted to see where his career was going to bring him. And again, this is me talking. I haven't talked to Wally, but it's pretty clear to me from listening to him on Francesa, from hearing from some people who have talked to him, that that's what he wanted. Not that he wanted guarantees, but he wanted to see a light at the end of the tunnel. And the year in and year out, well, I'll manage Vegas this year, and thinking that the, uh, the, the, the front office didn't like him, that didn't give him much of comfort that his career was going anywhere. Wally believes he belongs in a big league dugout, and he does. I think he would do well. There are so many bad managers out there. You can't tell me that putting Wally Backman in is that much of a risk. Does Wally like to partake a little bit too much in adult beverages? He's an old-school guy. He does like to drink. He's never done anything, as far as we all know, to embarrass the organization or put himself in a bad spot. Is he rough around the edges? Keith Hernandez said it himself. Wally's rough around the edges. He's very honest. He's very old school in that sense. But here's a guy that understands the chain of command in an organization. He understands, and he said it. He brought the numbers out when people questioned how his batting orders were against the wishes of the front office. He debunked all that Michael Conforto and Brandon Nimmo talk. Michael Conforto had nothing bad to say. Look, if players are not going to go out and trash somebody, but players are not going to go out on a limb and support someone if they don't like them. It basically be no comment, whatever, something like that. And both Nimmo and Conforto did that. Uh, you know, Frank Viola, I heard him on a, on a Mets blog podcast, had a lot to say about how he and Wally had a lot to do and feel very proud about their role in helping get this team to the World Series last year because they're helping develop players that are making it to the big league level. So this is a huge loss for the Mets, and Wally would have been the perfect succession to Terry Collins. Guys, Terry is in his late 60s. He's not a good manager right now. Uh, his one strength, which is keeping this team together, I question if it's the fact that they have a lot of solid veterans in this clubhouse. Because at times, the clubhouse hasn't been great during Terry's tenure when they've had some poisonous guys like Frank Francisco, Jose Valverde, Angel Pagan, guys that weren't exactly team players who didn't really mesh with the manager at times. They have great veteran guys on this team. That has as much to do with helping a manager be a good manager or a player's manager or a disciplinarian manager as it has to do with Terry Collins. Because a lot of the other things, like managing a bullpen, holding players accountable, I don't know if I see that all the time. And the narrative of Wally Backman would have been so... Forget the fact. This isn't about the, that, that he was an 80, former 86 Met. Is the fact that he understands the, or, the organization, he understands the city, he has a history. So from a, a marketing perspective, it would have been a nice fit. Just like Davey Johnson grew up within the Mets organization, Wally from 2010 when he was brought on grew up through this Mets organization and knows a lot of these young players that are now in the big leagues. It would have been a good fit. It would have been a good fit from a fan perspective. It would have been a good fit, fit from the dugout perspective. The only fit that wasn't there is that Sandy Alderson wants his type of guys. And Wally was 
inherited. He was an inherited guy. He was an ownership guy. Uh, and anytime someone takes over a, a, an organization, whether it's in sports or business, they want their own people. And whoever was there and, and was still there during Sandy Alderson's first year that was held over from the Omar Minaya regime has been phased out. It was inevitable. Uh, and that's what happens. Now, this is a big loss for the Mets in the sense where I feel Wally one day is going to get a shot, and he's going to do well, and everyone's going to sit here and go, that's the guy that should be managing the Mets. And it could still happen. I don't think it will. I mean, nothing's stopping Terry Collins from being fired or stepping down in the next couple of years, and the Mets bringing Wally Backman in for an interview. Just because he's not their AAA manager doesn't mean he can't be brought in, and he has. There is no doubt. I'm telling this. I know this for a fact. Jeff Wilpon and Fred Wilpon like Wally Backman, and he's here. Even Omar didn't want Wally Backman. I'll tell you that. I know that for a fact as well. Omar Manaya did not want Wally Backman. It was Jeff Wilpon that brought Wally Backman in, especially after the whole Tony Bernazard, uh, Omar, uh, Adam Rubin fiasco. At that point, Omar couldn't tell Jeff Wilpon anything because he knew, hey, I got to go and, uh, and bring some people in here who know what they're doing because at that point there was a lot of questions if Omar and his crew knew what they were doing. So, again, all I'm going to say is this. You have to – if you're an anti-Wally guy, I'm telling you, this has nothing to do with 86. Has, you know, I understand the off-the-field stuff. I understand that he could be a rough-around-the-edges type of guy. But this guy knows how to manage. He knows how to manage a bullpen. He would have been the perfect transition, and now you've put him out on the market. And at some point – I've been saying this for years – the Mets are going to regret that. Anyway, let's take a quick break. When we return, we'll talk more. Uh, we're going to get into the health of pitchers, Jacob DeGrom, and what's been going on here with the injuries. Joe Janis of uh, FixingPitchers.com, MetsToday.com, has some interesting thoughts about it. He's dived deep into the Mets uh, staff, and he wants to debunk some of the media and uh, industry narratives that come with pitching industries because he feels really, really strongly about that. So let's take a quick break. You are listening to the Talking Mets podcast. I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check us out all the time at MetsMorizeOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. Let's take a quick break. When we return, Joe Janis, and we get into the health of the Mets pitchers right after this. 0-2 from Melanson. And he whacks it to deep left field. Back goes Worth looking up, and it's out of here! T.J. Rivera gives the Mets the lead with his first major league home run. What a spot! T.J. Rivera, his third hit, his third RBI of the night. And he gives the Mets the lead in the top of the tenth, four to three, New York. <laughs> We're back talking Mets. Mike Sylvie here, uh, and joining me, and and it's a segment I planned a few days ago, and it was going to be something that we did as a feature, and unfortunately. As we talked about in the open, it's uh, a lot more newsworthy than we expected with the news yesterday of J- Jacob DeGrom being out the rest of the year. Joining me is Joe Janis. Joe, you may remember him from Mets Today. He also has a website, FixingPitchers.com, at FixingPitchers on Twitter, and he's going to be joining us. Joe, Mike Silva, how you doing? What's going on? Hey, I'm doing great, but I can't say the same for Jacob DeGrom, unfortunately. No, not at all. Now, Joe, I, I bring a lot of different people on. I don't just bring on uh, the name journalist and what have you. So if they haven't heard of you, you know, you're always going to have some wise guy going, ah, you know, someone with a blog is going to tell me how to fix Jacob DeGrom. Somebody's going to let me know that, uh, 
you know, Dan Worthen doesn't know what he's talking about, or Keith Law doesn't know what he's uh, talking about. So give give the listeners an idea if they don't know who you are. Uh, you have some pretty good experience, not only on the field, but off the field uh, about this subject, about baseball, but specifically about uh, pitchers and keeping pitchers healthy. Yeah, I um, I was a pitching coach at the college level a long time ago, and I'd always had a, an interest in understanding the pitching motion and how to prevent pitching injuries. So I kind of went off the uh, the traditional route of listening to other pitching coaches and started to do a little study in kinesiology and body movement, anatomy and physiology, and started talking to scientists who knew about those sort of things. And as it turns out, baseball people don't necessarily know the right way to throw a baseball, and they don't necessarily know how to uh, identify or fix pitching mechanics. It's something that really should be left to uh, someone who has a, a, a more formal training in the background of like physiology, anatomy, that sort of thing. I don't have that background. I consult with people who do. And it's it's kind of a cutting-edge thing to to uh, look look to experts and scientists to help uh, help fix pitchers, basically. Now, that's a great point. Before we get to – you wrote an article early September, a lot of stuff, which if you if – you and I thought back this yesterday when I heard the DeGrom news to that article, and, and we'll get into that. Uh, and I'd like to get a little feedback on your thoughts on the actual injury, which is kind of odd, and, and the Mets are downplaying a little bit, which to me is, is, is a little strange as well. But when you talk about science being involved in keeping pitchers healthy, I remember interviewing – Dr. Mike Marshall, the former uh, big league pitcher, pitched for the Mets, but no more for the Dodgers. And, 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 and he's a kinesiologist, I believe, and, and he's pretty much known as a quack among the baseball community. Um, yeah. It's going to be hard to bridge that gap, Joe. I mean, you know baseball people uh, have their own ways. It's a club, and, and now the club includes uh, Ivy League-educated GMs, which never would have included that club just five years ago, six years ago, maybe even ten years ago. Uh, sure. It's going to be hard to bring that thought process to these to this, these individuals who are very stuck in their ways and 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 feel anything that's outside of what they've been told at whatever seminar they tend to go to, which I'm guessing none uh, is the right thing to do or something to consider. Yeah, Mike, you're exactly right. Um, it, it, MLB is a big boys club, and if you're not in the club, then they don't listen to you, generally speaking. Um, Dr. Mike Marshall, he might have done more harm than good. Um, he has some very interesting theories, and really what he came up with is a different way to propel the baseball. Uh, and really everything that he says doesn't apply to what scientists call as overhead throwing. Um, there are all these scientific terms related to throwing the baseball, and, and one of the terms is overhead, not overhand, believe it or not. But anyway he's created like a whole different way to throw the baseball. And that's why everything that he says is kind of, uh, it's really not very helpful to the situation. And, you know, when, like you said, when baseball people look at science, they just, they immediately think of, or kinesiology, they immediately think of Dr. Mike Marshall. And, and he, it's true is the rest of the scientific community doesn't really uh, believe in, in the things that he's put forth. And a lot of the things that he's said, it really doesn't apply to pitching the baseball off the mound. Um, and I, you know, it's going to take a while, but, you know, like you said, you know, we've got, we've got cybermetricians now and we've got, uh, Ivy leaguers in, in the front offices. So, you know, there might be light at the end of the tunnel. Eventually it's just going to take a while. 
Yeah, because if you think about it, with venture capital groups, I mean, that's the thing now. If you want to buy a baseball team, the days of like the late 90s where Mark Cuban comes in, this regular guy who made a lot of money and bought a team, or at Bud Selig, I mean, the old joke was he, he was he was a used car salesman. That's how he made his money, or uh, Jerry Reisendorf. These were businessmen, very wealthy guys, but uh, they weren't in the upper echelon tier of wealth when they came into the league. Now you have these venture capital groups led by these individuals who – uh, made money through uh, high-powered jobs on Wall Street, typically. And, and that's how these Ivy League-educated GMs and some of these advanced thoughts of, of looking at players and whatnot, because there was a cost savings or a value equation attached to it, came into play. You would think with yep. these type of individuals coming into the game that this would be the next step. I mean, I had Jeff Passan on earlier this year. and I mean, and even Rick Peterson talked about it. I mean, you have a billion dollars worth of of uh, investment uh, somewhere in that ballpark and pitchers out there and look at the Mets. I mean, some of those guys are young. They're not making a lot of money. Uh, pretty much the whole rotation is, 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 has had injuries except for the guy who's 43 years old and extremely overweight. So you would think that this is not too far down the road, but I wonder because baseball's so slow, so slow. And the media, a lot of times, Joe, because it's almost like a badge of honor is very slow to help the process. A lot of times, if you think about it. Yeah, and Mike, you know, I think you hit on some things without realizing it. Uh, the fact that there's baseball has been more run by numbers more recently is actually something that's keeping science out, believe it or not, at least the right science. Uh, baseball does look at biomechanics. Every team has put their pitchers through a biomechanical analysis, thanks to Rick Peterson and ASMI. Um, but that's really only half of the equation. There's um, Biomechanics are... are Basically, it, it looks at body movement but from a, a mathematical standpoint. So, like, you send a pitcher to a, for an evaluation, and you'll get back this report with all kinds of angles and numbers and, and degrees, and it'll say, oh, you know, at max, max external rotation, the, the wrist is at 45 degrees, and we would prefer that it be a 38 or something like that. And, you know, a pitching coach gets this report, and it, gibberish like he doesn't know what to do with all these numbers uh that's called quantitative science and that's something that can be measured and you can count it so you know i imagine statisticians like that idea they like to be able to count things but there's a second part of science qualitative science where you need someone who can interpret that report and look at the picture and apply the fixes and and make things work and that's the part that's missing you, we don't have any qualitative scientists on the mound you know, next to the mound with the pitcher who can apply the fixes that need to be fixed. And again, I, you know, I think it's, I think it does have something to do with the numbers. You know, you pointed out that all these pitchers on the Mets are not making a lot of money. They're younger. And I wonder if they just, they're just looking at the data and saying, okay, here's, here is the, the rate of, of a pitcher, how many pitches he can throw, how many innings he can throw before he gets hurt. Let's, let's run him out there and keep running him out there until, until he hits that number and until something breaks, and then we'll move on to the next pitcher while, while we're still paying him next to nothing and, and not worry about, you know, uh, whether or not he stays healthy for 10 years because they don't want him. They don't care if they, he stays healthy for 10 years. They want him for the five or six years where he's affordable, and then he moves on and gets his $100 million contract. Well, fine, go go ahead and leave and, and you know, take your take your bad arm with you. We'll, we'll get another 23-year-old kid. And throwing him on the mound until his arm breaks. I really feel like it's a, you know, like a disposable society in that in that 
in that case. I think I think that you know that's that's my theory anyway. I, I don't know if that's really the way they're looking at it, but it sure seems that way. The way, especially the way the Mets have been pushing the kids out there and chewing them up with cortisone and everything else just to get them through the season. No, oh, forget it. If you're a veteran, I remember I had an argument with Ken Davidoff, uh, who read to the Post uh, about uh, Terry Collins hurting a couple of the veteran pitchers, uh, namely one Tim Burdak, and he's like, well. These are fungible uh, relievers. Uh, why are you worried about them? Like, well, that is somebody's career that just went down the tubes. I mean, yeah. whether they made you know five hundred thousand or ten million, so the media plays into that. Let me throw you some numbers before we. One more thing, Joe, before we get to the Grom. You mentioned the numbers in in baseball. So Joe Trezza, who writes for MLB.com last night, after all this news came out, and he was trying to make a point. He's basically making the point that the numbers that you know that are being used are really not. Effective. So Jacob Degrom was held to fewer than 100 pitches. That's the the, the golden number right now. Right. And 33 yeah. of 76 MLB starts. That's 45 percent. Matt Harvey was held to fewer than 100 pitches and 13 of 36 starts. 36 percent. Zach Wheeler was held to fewer than 100 pitches and 14 of his first 44 starts. 29 percent. And then he goes on to some other players like Matt Moore, Alex Cobb, who who had some arm injuries. Uh, and in those cases, it was 50 plus percent. When you look at their, and this is the first start, not the last, you know, 44. I'm talking about sure. the start into the big leagues. So I remember one time Terry Collins when Zach Wheeler was on the mound and, and he was starting to have some bulky uh, elbow problems. Uh, nobody was talking mechanics here. Uh, at 100 pitches, he ran out. I still have made, made a joke. He ran out like if he wasn't going to get out there quick enough after the 100th pitch, he would get, you know, Wheeler would get shot or something along those lines. <laughs> Yeah. And I laugh because it doesn't matter. It's like if you dri- if a car is built poorly, it'll break down driving one mile up the block. It may not break down when you're driving from New York to Florida. And and and, and I'll let you kind of get into that. But uh, it's interesting because you know and I, I'm going by these numbers by uh, by a MLB writer, so I don't know how accurate they are. I'm sure they are, but that's the the judgment, the hundred pitches and the rest and all that other stuff. Yeah, the numbers are. They do all this counting, but they do it for the wrong reason. Uh, you know, as you say, it, if, if you have a car that that you know needs to be fixed, if, if the alignment needs to be done, you know, your tires are going to wear out sooner than if the alignment is perfect, right? So, if if you you know you can't just say, oh well, my tires are going to go 100,000 miles or 50,000 miles. No, you have to make sure that you know that the car is running right. You have to make sure you have the front end alignment. It's the same thing with pitchers. You know, a hundred pitches. You know, again, that's a statistical thing. That's like, you know, uh, I know a lot of uh, cybermetricians will tell you, well, after the hundredth pitch, the, you know, the pitch, the pitcher will, you know, his performance will go down. Okay, that's, you know, that's just a general thing. You know, every pitcher is different. Um, you know, a uh, hundred pitches by Oliver Perez and a hundred pitches by Greg Maddox. Those are, those are two very different things to measure. And you know, they get caught up in, it doesn't matter. You know, look at Steven Strasburg too. I mean, they, they've been taking care of him before the, before the surgery, after the surgery, he's gone down. It's not how many you throw, it's how you throw. And it's what you do after you throw. And that's when you throw a hundred pitches, you're not supposed to pick up the ball for four days. And just about every single major league pitcher uh, does a bullpen within 48 hours. And that's, that is actually interfering with the healing process of the arm. So rate, it, rate them in there. Every, just about every major league pitcher is doing something wrong. And this is science. This isn't a theory. This is what has been proven over decades of research of, you know, studying, studying uh, 
the arm anatomy, looking at um, cadavers, the you know the ligaments of cadavers to see what kind of load they can handle. There's there's all kinds of science that goes into this, and you know it, to count pitches and think that you know a pitcher has so many bullets in his arm, it just it doesn't make any sense. That's not that's not how it works. But again, we're in this society of of baseball where you have statisticians running baseball teams and they're just looking at numbers and, and they want to be able to figure things out on paper. And it's really something you need to look at uh, with your eyes and see what's going on with the pitcher. It doesn't, it, you just can't count and say, all right, just arbitrarily 100 pitches and keep them safe. It's not, not necessarily. You got to see how he's doing it. I have with me Joe Janice. He's a former Division One pitching coach, player. He's also a writer, fixingpitchers.com. Also, MetsToday.com, if you've uh, followed the Mets, you probably – I mean, the website's been around forever. Let's get to the you, – you brought up the, the concept of rest, and you talked about throwing in between bullpens. So a lot of times – and again, I'll, I'll be totally transparent. Uh, you know, I have had extensive conversations with Rick Peterson, both on the air, off the air, trying to learn, trying to figure out. And, and a lot of times he talks about mechanics – um, and mechanical flaws. I mean, you brought up Strasburg. You know, I remember talking to Rick, uh, and I think he's talked to other people about it. And he, and he said Strasburg's mechanics are pretty poor. Uh, you know, and he yeah. he also brought up a guy like Jake Peavy, and and he'll show you on a video uh, the late the late arm action and how that puts yep. strain on the shoulder and the elbow and what have you. So I'm a you know, it's like when they say you're a, a junior marketer or a junior psychologist. I'm a junior pitching coach here, where I try to look at video and say, well, that guy has bad mechanics, or that guy's at risk, but certainly I wouldn't go by my opinion, but it's more than just the mechanics. So mechanics is what everybody talks about and rest, which you just brought up, but the kind of rest they talk about is we'll start them late in spring training, skip a start. You know, you, you outlined in this early September article, it's, it's way different. That's a very uh, inaccurate way of looking at it or, or a myopic way of looking at it. So there's, there's more than that. And you outlined four important parts. So for the Mets fans listening, if, if, if Joe Janis was the Mets pitching coach, you know, how would you go about trying to make this staff, stay healthy because you outlined it pretty appropriately in that article yeah um well first of all i wouldn't be the pitching coach <laughs> um <laughs> i would probably bring in someone who had a better idea of what they're doing and or, or at least get their advice but um i mean the number one thing is to look at the recovery time and make sure that your pitches are getting the proper recovery time by by looking at the recovery guidelines that have, that have been posted by the asmi that have been used by usa baseball that have been produced by the scientific community and it's, you know, a certain amount of pitches requires a certain amount of rest. That's why you count pitches. That's why you always counted pitches was to know how, how much rest you need. So, you know, you know, again, for example, if you threw a hundred pitches, you need not to throw the ball for four days. That means no bullpen. That means no long toss. That means no playing catch. Just do not throw the baseball for four days. And then you go on the mound. Um, you know, if you, if you throw, if you're a reliever and you throw, say, you know, 30 pitches, uh, you should probably take a day off. Uh, you know, if you, if you threw, uh, up to 45 pitches, you should probably take two days off. It's, it's, and you have to adhere to that. And that would be the number one thing that I do is make sure everyone's on the right recovery time. And believe it or not, Bartolo Colon, from what I understand, you know, I'm not there every day, but from what I understand, he's the one pitcher who takes four days off in between starts. He doesn't pick up the ball. He waits he wait until his next start. His arm is refreshed, and he goes and, and throws. And, and look, he's 42 years old and still pitching. Um, so that would be the number one thing is make sure everyone is following proper recovery. Uh, number two, you know, look at the mechanics. And, 
you know, again, I, I know that you need to look at mechanics. I can identify some flaws, but I'm not the expert. You have to take uh, every, pitcher's, every pitcher's motion needs to be recorded from four different angles, front, back, and the sides, um, high-speed frame, you know, so you could do frame by frame, and you have a scientist look at it who knows what they're doing. It's someone who has a, an advanced degree in physiology, a gym, uh, you know, exercise science, that sort of thing, and have them take a look and see where the flaws are and get them fixed. Uh, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's fair to ask Dan Worthen or any major league coach to do that. They think they can do it, but they really can't. They don't, they don't have the background. You need a, a really advanced background to do that sort of thing. I, w- I wouldn't do it. I actually stopped giving pitching coaching lessons because I felt like I didn't know enough to keep kids healthy. So I just stopped. I said, you know what, I, I don't know for sure that I'll be able to fix a kid's mechanics, so I don't do it anymore. I just I try to study what other others are doing. Um, and then the third thing, which is really important, is a good a good um, strength strength and conditioning program. Now I know every major league player goes through strength and conditioning programs, and they're all high powered guys and this and that. But I don't know how many pitchers actually go through an elbow strengthening program. You know, they all do their their Job's bands and their the rotator cuff stuff, but nobody seems to do elbow uh, strengthening exercises. And I think it comes from the fact that um, baseball players don't think you can strengthen the elbow. I, I mean, I've heard Ron Darling say a hundred times, oh, you know, you can't strengthen the elbow, but you can. There are exercises to build up all of the muscles in the forearm and in the bicep and around the elbow and, and strengthen that area. And I don't know how many major league pitchers do that. So that would be another part of, of uh, what I do. And then finally, um, when you when you see injuries and you see red flags like uh, you know uh, a bunster or forearm tightness or you know what, whatever it is that there's a, there's a pain in the pitcher's arm, it, the process can't be to let it calm down, uh, give him a cortisone shot, and then put him back on the mound. That, that's that can't be the process. The process has to be okay. Well, why do you have forearm soreness? Let's shut you down. You're not going to throw. Let's take a look at the video. Let's see what's going on. What is causing that forearm soreness? And then 99 times out of 100, or maybe 100 out of 100, you'll see a mechanical flaw. And you'll say, oh, look, that's, there it is. Your, your arm is late. Or look, you're not, you're not fully releasing your elbow after you release the baseball. You know, we need to work on your follow-through. And then you fix that problem. And then when that problem is fixed, then you go back on the mound. It's not a, you know, shut down cortisone Okay, feels good, get back on the mound. No, you fix what's going wrong. And then once it's fixed, go back on the mound. So those would be the four things that I would start with if I had, you know, any say in a major league team's pitching staff. But um, unfortunately, I don't, I don't know how many of these things are being done by any major league team. And it's not just the Mets. It's, it's pretty much widespread. And here's the thing about mechanical flaws. How easy do you think it is for pitchers who have been pitching a certain way their entire life, uh, guys like DeGrom and Harvey and, and Syndergaard, and, and, and continue to focus on the things like completing their pitches. Uh, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot to throughout the game, holding runners on, you know, the, 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 the strengths and weaknesses of the hitter. And also throw in there, well, i got to make sure that I do ABC that I've been working on. It's a lot. Now, that's what you do in between starts, yeah. or obviously right. in spring training. But 
it's not – I don't think it's that easy to fix. All, I mean, we keep hearing about my mechanics are off, my mechanics are off. DeGrom's been saying that. I want to get to him. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but, but it's probably not as easily fixable as maybe that anybody can make it out to be. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm asking you. Yeah, it's, it's not easy to fix if you don't know – if you don't really know what's wrong and if you don't have someone to guide you through the fix. Uh, you know, in most cases – it, it's not a it's not a thing where you have to completely overhaul your mechanics. It, it's rarely the case. Usually, it's one or two movements. It's usually a timing thing, and when you have the right person to apply the fix, and you know they know they know how to teach and they they know how to you know teach the correction. That's a big part too. You know, you you can't just say hey you, you got to like keep your shoulder in. No, you, there's a whole process. Um, and usually, when the pitcher gets the proper correction, he can feel it and he'll be like, oh my God, that feels great. Like I don't, you know, I get it. And then, and then it just kind of clicks and it goes. And, you know, I've, I've seen it. I've, I've seen pitchers just make minor mechanical changes that have taken strain off the elbow or the shoulder and, and, and it works. And it, it works because the pitcher, first of all, he wants it to work. Second of all, he can feel it. And third of all, it feels good. And when it feels good, you, it, not that difficult to fix. I mean, no, it's not something you're going to do in game. It's not something you're going to think about. It's just like hitting. Hitting hitters change their mechanics all the time, you know, or adjust them, um, and they do it, you know, on their off days or in, in batting practice, and then it eventually spills over into the game. And it's the same thing with with pitchers. I think they just this idea that you can't change mechanics because you've been doing them your whole life or this or that. I think it's because uh, it just hasn't been the right haven't been the right people to teach the corrections. And then when they try to correct, the correction is the wrong correction, and things get worse, as in the case of Matt Harvey. I mean, the, what he went through this year, changing this and that, like left and right, he, you know, he, he never really knew what was wrong. And it was like he was just blindly throwing darts and, and trying to figure out what was wrong, and one thing led to another, and eventually, you know, he had his, his issue. Um, but I think that's a big thing is that, that absolutely mechanics are correctable when you have the right guidance and they're the right fix. I would be Joe Janis, Mets today, fixingpitchers.com. Let's get to DeGrom because he, to make it clear, and, and this is where there might be some confusion with uh, not so much the writers, they've been trying to make it clear, but the fans, he doesn't have a, a, a ligament issue. He's got the uh, the nerve, the UCL nerve, which I, I guess if you take your fingers and you kind of twist them upward, you could feel that's the, 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 the nerve that goes from your, your, your hand all the way up to your elbow. Um, which is a pretty important part, and 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 for those, and Joe, correct me if I'm saying this wrong. I, I read this in the, uh, the Jeff Passan book when Tommy John had the initial surgery, the Tommy John surgery. They they had to go back in and play with the the UCL nerve because he had uh, atrophy. He couldn't move, couldn't move his fingers. They they thought they'd right. screwed it up. But um, um, this is an I think this is an odd injury, scar tissue in the UCL nerve. I don't again maybe it hasn't been reported. I haven't heard of a pitcher having this issue. And they're making it seem like it's a, although it's surgery, it's not quite Tommy John surgery. You know, he'll be back in six months, you know, at worst case scenario. Yeah, I think, I want to say that uh, Zach Wheeler had the same issue during his uh, his Tommy John rehab. I think he might have also had an ulnar nerve issue. I can't remember just off the top of my head. You know, th- this is a situation where I, I do want to consult with somebody before I, I uh, shoot off something that isn't true, but my, from what I understand, I don't, I find it hard to believe that he's having an ulnar nerve issue, ulnar nerve issue that's related to his Tommy John surgery that happened 
didn't it happen in like 2008? Wasn't it almost 10 years ago when he had his tummy dump surgery? Yeah, it's about five years at least. I mean, maybe 11. I'm trying to remember when he had it. But, you know, he had it about right around when he got drafted by the Mets. So we're not looking like it's not something that happened, you know, yesterday. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I... I mean, I you know anything is possible. Um, I think the the thing, the big takeaway is that he had Tommy John surgery once, which means, you know, most likely he was doing something wrong in his motion that caused the UCL tear. You know, m- most likely. Um, you know, looking at his mechanics, they're not they're not ideal. They're not awesome. You know, he's, he does some things that are not very good, certainly not good for his shoulder. And we, we've already seen that with the lat issues. Um, <clears throat> so I would guess that again, you know, this is a situation where he, he had, has something in his motion that caused the initial UCL tear. Um, now, now he has a nerve irritation. Could it be related to the same thing that caused the UCL tear? I mean, maybe, probably, I'm definitely going to consult with people and find out if that's definitely the case. Um, but I mean, he already he does have mechanical issues anyway. I mean, he, you know, and, and he he's somebody who who does need to be fixed anyway. So again, it's a situation where are you just going to do the surgery and then go right back to pitching the same way you did before, or are you going to have the surgery, try and figure out why it happened? and then take the steps to correct it so that it doesn't happen again. And hopefully that's what he does. But in most cases, that's that's not what major league pitchers do. No, and you, you make a point in the article. Then the Mets have, with both Stephen Matz and, and Noah Syndergaard, they've talked about, well, they have bone spurs in their elbow, and the bone spurs uh, are not going to hurt the, the ligament. So pretty much right. pitch through it. And I've heard Ron Darling talk about when he played. I mean, look, when, when, when you watch baseball in the 80s, I started watching baseball in the 80s, um, all these injuries happened. They just weren't talked about. There wasn't a, a right. Twitter account. Uh, somebody was shut down for you know arm soreness, and it just that was it. Then they came yep. back next year, and or they were just shelled for the rest of the year. And it was very vague as to what the situation was. Or they pitched through it and pitched poorly, and then either got released, traded, what have you. Now yep. you talk about in the article the 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 bone spurs. Yeah, maybe they won't hurt the ligament, but there's so much more that could go wrong pitching through that, and cortisone is just masking it. Right. And uh, Darling has said, look, you're going to have to pitch through pain if you're a pitcher, and I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing to a certain degree. I'm, I'm guessing you're never going to have a painless day when you have the kind of consistent motion and, and, and exercise that these guys are going through. But this is a little bit more. You, you compare it to a, a fire truck with blaring the, the, the siren <laughs> through the neighborhood and saying, guys, you know, you could go and run inside and put your head under the pillow and, and say, all right, everything's going to be okay. There's no fire, but, you know, there's a chance that the fire will come. It just may not come right now. And, and both of these guys, important components of this rotation, uh, for lack of a better word, may be playing with fire a little bit. Yeah, uh, again, bone spurs, that, that's a red flag. That's, hey, something is wrong. Let's find out what's wrong. Why, why did the bone spur occur? You know, and to understand why bone spurs occur, why does why does bone go against bone? It's because something has been compromised inside the elbow. So, you know, why has it been compromised? You know, the, the bone spur, from what I understand, what Syndergaard and Matt have, it, it's in the back of the elbow. And that is absolutely consistent with their uh, very poor follow-throughs. They, they don't properly release their elbow. Their, their arms stay almost completely straight at the end of their at the end, after they release the baseball, they're off balance. 
Um, and that's putting strain on the shoulder. And, you know, you're, they're putting the strain on the shoulder, and as a result, because because the shoulder is being compromised, the elbow has to work harder. And when the elbow works harder, you know, thing, things can go wrong and things can break down. And in their case, you know, the, something happened inside the elbow to create the, the bone spur. And, you know, it has nothing to do with the UCL, which is why it wasn't a surprise when the, UC, the uh, MRI came back clean. Of course it came back clean. It's not a UCL issue. It's a shoulder issue. And, you know, that's why it was also not a surprise when Stephen Matz came down with the shoulder problem. It, it, and people are saying, oh, it's not related. No, I mean, a bone spur in the elbow is not related to a shoulder problem when you just take them isolated. But when you put it together and you say, well, this guy's a pitcher, he throws a baseball, and he's doing it in a way that's hurting both places of his arm, well, yes, they are related. But, you know, again, MLB is like, well, if, if UCL is okay, then the pitcher can go back on the mound. Okay, the rotator cuff's not torn, great, put him back on the mound. Um, they're, they're not connecting the dots. They need to figure out why did the bone spur occur? What is it that we can do to make sure that it doesn't flare up again? You know, is, is it something in his mechanics? Is it something in his routine? Is it a weakness somewhere? They're not doing, they're not taking those steps, I don't think, because if they were taking those steps, these things wouldn't happen. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, <laughs> you, don't, you don't put a guy back on the mound with who has a bone spur without knowing what's going on for sure. And I don't think the Mets really know what's going on for sure. And as for throwing through pain, I don't think that's necessary. I think that's, that's an old school thing because they didn't have the knowledge that we have now. I mean, you know, we didn't have the, the science and, and the high-speed photography and everything else that, that we have now. I mean, we now know that there are incorrect mechanics and they can be fixed. And I don't, I don't think you need to pitch through pain. It's not like uh, running a marathon where, you know, you, you, you have to, you know, run through until, until your, your, your legs are burning, your lungs are burning. I think, I think pitching is a different thing. It's, it's not something that you're supposed to do in pain, uh, regardless of what all these pitchers like to say. A couple of things before we wrap up here. Let's talk about something basic that doesn't require a high level of science to, to, to see that it's working. You brought up Bartolo Colon. And now Bartolo Colon yep. is in his 40s. I know he had, uh, I think it was a stem cell procedure a few years back, which was controversial because was it technically legal? It, it was obviously not done in this country, and the steroid, and he got pinched. I, I mean, there's a lot of things. You know, It's not like he took steroids, and he, all of a sudden he was able to li- you know, survive and come back because he had some serious uh, arm problems. Now, here's a guy that, uh, at his age, uh, it, you know, was not, it doesn't seem like he's throwing in between starts. There's really not a heck of a lot the Mets can do. He's being paid a lot. He's a veteran. And either they can not sign him or sign him. And, and let's face it, we talked about this earlier. Baseball teams don't give a, a rat's you-know-what about Bartolo Colon's arm. He's on right. a one-year deal. If he goes down tomorrow, Joe, it's very unfortunate for this Mets team. But from a, a, a sunk cost, they move on. And they don't think about right. him the, the day after. Uh, it'll be a 24-hour news cycle on it. But he's doing something that if you're Dan Worthen and, and, and you're the young pitchers, you're like, hmm, you know, he's at 43 years old. Yeah, he had this procedure. Uh, forget about the process of how he goes and attacks the hitters. There's been no issues. And you would think the guy's got a rebuilt arm. He's, he's north of 40 when your, your skills and talents could go overnight. We saw that happen with Tom Glavin. And yeah. uh, he's successful. I mean, there's something basic. It doesn't take a scientist. It's not something that... Uh, all of a sudden, it's 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 breaking the good old boys club. Just do it. Give it a shot. And um, 
I mean, I'm curious if that's something they are doing. It seems like they may be backing off a little bit with Syndergaard in between starts, but I'm not sure. So it's interesting how it's something very simple. Forget about all the other stuff we've talked about. Maybe a, a short-term key to help out a little bit here. Yeah, you know, Cologne, and the other thing about Cologne, he has a pretty major flaw in his mechanics that's very similar to Johan Santana's. He's got he's got an issue that probably should cause a shoulder problem at some point. Um, and but he does rest. He rests in between, and he, he maybe he does some kind of strengthening routine as well. I mean, if if every major league pitcher would just adhere to the recovery guidelines and not pick up a baseball for four days after a 100 pitch start and would do a preventive maintenance program for their elbow and their shoulder. If they just did those two things and forget about the mechanics and everything else, if they just did those two things, we would probably see a sharp decrease in arm injuries if they just did those two things. And yeah, I agree with you. Why, why not try what Bartolo Colon is trying? What, and what have you got to lose? I mean, the, everything that they're trying to do between counting pitches and, and using the TrackMan technology and, and all this other stuff, everything they're doing is, is not working. You know, it's just getting worse. So why not try something different? And why not give it a shot? I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me why why pitchers have to throw in between starts. There's there's no there's no reason to do it. They they know what they're doing. They're major leaguers. They've been doing this for for years and years and years. They can repeat their mechanics. They shouldn't have to throw in between. I mean, maybe, maybe one little tune up the day before a start, but I don't understand why they insist on throwing in between starts. Just just don't do it. They're, you're doing nothing positive for your game. And here's what's interesting. Uh, in the NBA, what happens as the season goes on? What do the stars players what do the star players do in between games? They don't practice. They take time right. off. Uh, yeah. Especially the the veterans. Now, is it because there is hope. I remember and, I, and I'm very paraphrasing at a very high level here. I'm not at all have the article in front of me, but I remember reading a hoops hype article about the studies, the scientific studies and it ties into what you're talking about with pitchers that NBA teams are starting to do to talk about rest. And that's been a controversy in another sport because, you know, a lot of the old school guys are like, I played 82 games, I played four games in five nights, and I survived. But, you know, now teams are saying, okay, uh, you have four games in five nights. That's probably not the healthiest thing. And if you don't get rest, and they, they tied it into sleep in this article, right? your body is not at its peak performance. And then there are things similar to a pitcher who is ignoring some kind of a red flag like you talk about. There are things that you're doing that are potentially going to hurt your back, your knees, uh, and, and, and shelve you and put you out for a, a period of time. And NBA teams, the Spurs specifically, are starting to rest players, and they're getting mocked for it for, from the media and what have you. It's really no different. It's not apples to apples, but it's the same process that you're advocating to a certain degree with pitchers. And with pitchers, it's even, yeah. even easier because – you're not you're not sitting the guy in front of everybody and, and losing a game on national TV. You're just saying, hey, back off. And to a certain degree, NBA players they don't practice the, some of these guys every day, uh, and they skip practices. Right. Especially guys like Ewing later in his career, and I'm sure Tim Duncan and what have you. They really don't need it anymore. They get their routine. They they understand it, and that's really, in my opinion, what you're advocating here. And it's it's not really a big deal if you really to quote Brian Cashman, peel the onion here and really think about it. Yeah, and you know, I we always hear about, you know, these pitchers from the 1950s and 60s and 70s who threw 300 innings and oh, how they do that with the four-man rotation. Well, you know, I don't know what their what their routines were back then, but maybe they didn't throw for those 3 days in between. You know, this this whole idea of throwing in between starts m- might have been a more modern thing. Um and for 
most people to get it, to really understand this, what I like to say is, you know, if you've ever lifted weights, you've ever like, you know, bench pressed or whatever, and you're trying to get yourself in shape, you don't max out on the bench press on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Like most people, they'll do like a three-day routine. They'll, 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 you know, max out maybe or do their exercises on a Monday. And then Tuesday, if they want to still go to the gym, maybe they'll work on their legs. And then Wednesday, they'll go back to the upper body. Like you, you give your body that rest in between. And it's, it's the same thing with, with pitching or, or basketball or football or whatever it is. You, your body needs time to heal. And again, this is science. You know, the scientists have studied this and they, they can, they can tell you, you know, different body parts, different activities, how much rest they need after a certain amount of repetitions or a certain amount of uh, intensity. And, and it's, it's all been figured out. And that, and I don't know why, especially the major league teams won't follow the guidelines. It's, it's, doesn't make any sense at all, but yeah, I agree with you. It's uh, the NBA is doing it in their in their way, and MLB should start doing it. Bartolo Colon's doing it. You know, you'd think if Bartolo was doing it, everyone would do it. Right, exactly. One last thing: is there anybody on the Mets staff that the you could uh, point out that has really clean, good mechanics? Could be a reliever, could be a starter. You know, I'm sure there's people that now you know fans like to get in. Let me look at video. Let me do this. Is there somebody in your opinion that uh, is? You know, not perfect, but more the model of, of what a cleaner mechanics type of situation would be. Mm. That that pause tells not me there's really. a lot of bad mechanics on the Not really. It's you know, I I couldn't even say I couldn't even give you a major league pitcher. I mean every it seems like every major league pitcher has some kind of a flaw. Right. Um and it's you know, that that's the problem. You know, they, they, these guys have these flaws and they don't get fixed and then they get hurt. Uh, I, I don't know right. what's ideal. I, I can't say that someone has an ideal one. And you know, Harvey's mechanics, everyone thought they were great. And you know, I'd look at them and I'd be like, "Well, it looks like his arm is late. It looks like you know he's got some issues here and there." And I, I think maybe I'm too deep into it. Like I'm, I've been studying this for so long. I'm, I, I see right. more flaws than positives. Right. So um, when I do see the ideal picture, I will let you know. Right. Well, I, I hear you. Joe, so you've got fixingpitchers.com, at fixingpitchers on Twitter, metstoday.com. If there's a fan who wants to read more about it, a parent, um, you know, obviously you, you, you don't have all the answers, but you're doing the right thing. You're trying to put this together in a way where, hey, this is what I know. This is where you could go. Uh, give the listeners an idea where they can uh, find you and, and some of the things you're, uh, you're up to in the, the next few weeks and so on. Yeah, um, you know, I'm, I'm out trying to help the young pitchers, the, the um, I've given up on the major leaguers. Um, so let's try and help the amateurs. Uh, so please, if you can go to fixing, fixing pitchers.com. Uh, I, we do a podcast every two weeks. I interview, uh, a pitching motion troubleshooter named Angel Borelli. She's, a she has a, a master's in exercise science. Uh, she's one of these scientists that I'm talking about that actually can understand the pitching motion and can, correct flaws and that sort of thing. We talk about a lot of things that can help any pitcher, any coach, any parent at any level. Uh, we do it every two weeks. It's, you could go on uh, iTunes, Baseball Pitching, The Fix, and uh, subscribe. That'd be great, and you might learn something, and I hope it helps. Absolutely. Joe, have a great rest of the Sunday. Uh, appreciate the time. It's been a while since we talked, and uh, be well, and let's do this again. Hopefully, you know, Hopefully we do it in a way where – it's not, uh, you know, four-fifths of the Mets rotation being uh, on the shelf, but uh, <laughs> one could only hope. Have a, have a great Sunday, my friend. Thank you very much, Mike. I appreciate it.
And that's Joe Janis. Uh, interesting stuff. MetsToday.com, FixingPitchers.com. And uh, I think it's well worth it. And, and look, we didn't solve anything here today, but I think he has some very interesting ideas. So anyway, let's uh, take a quick break. When I return, final thoughts. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. I'm your host, Mike Silva. We'll be right back. Walk-off home run earlier this year against the Dodgers back in May. And Curtis swings, hits it deep to right field. Back toward the corner. Kepler near the wall. We're back. Final thoughts here. Talking Mets podcast and uh, some good stuff there by uh, Joe Janis. I think uh, he's done some good work here. And he was very honest. If he didn't know something, it was like, hey, I, I don't know. He's not out there trying to push an agenda. He was just trying to uh, give you something different to think about. In, in an era, and he, you know, the NBA, I brought that up. In the NBA, there's always been, uh, over the last couple of years, a lot of advanced metrics. And one of the things that I've read about, and I don't really have it in front of me, I'm not really, it's not really relevant, but rest has been a big part of uh, the dialogue, especially when uh, it comes to you know, teams like the San Antonio uh, Spurs resting their players uh, you know, on, on nights when they're in Miami playing when LeBron James was in Miami, uh, with, the, with the Heat on national uh, game. And, 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 that, and that annoys a, a lot of the media. It annoys the fans because it's like that takes away the narrative of the night. It takes away big matchups. It takes away regular season storylines. Uh, there's a lot that, that comes into play when, it, when, it's, uh, when that's uh, said and done. Rest is something that's talked about, but is rest not talked about in baseball anyway? In terms of in-between starts, yeah, let me rest the player by shutting them down from pitching upon their particular turn in the rotation or shutting them down from uh, playing that game. But they're still doing the in-between activity. So, like Joe said, maybe look at it differently. Do you need to have all these side sessions during the, uh, the, the season? I mean, pitchers, they know their stuff. They know what they have to do. Go out there and pitch. I mean, NBA players sometimes don't practice. Because they're trying to save their bullets for the, the, the game as the season goes on. Not that they're, they're dogging it. It's about the body being able to recuperate. And there's been studies about sleep and how important sleep is. Because if you're tired, even though you don't feel tired or you're grinding through it, you start to compromise, even if you're subliminally compromising. And that's how you hurt yourself. And that's what could be going on. And look, at 43 years old, Bartolo Colon is 14-7, and seven, a 3.14 ERA, an ERA plus of 127. So right up there, he's going to be the Mets' number two starter. It's very well possible that Bartolo Colon is going to start game one of the uh, National League Division Series if the Mets go that far, if they go that far, uh, against the Chicago Cubs in Wrigley Field. They're going to need him. They're going to need him to step up. A guy that was a big part of last year's team, but more as the bridge between getting the ball to Familia because the bullpen was so shaky last year, is now going to be an integral part of this year's team in the rotation. He has to give them that six, seven innings. And at this point, you know, you might in a big game, in a deciding game, feel more comfortable with him than anybody else. 
And at, at his age, he's had one of the better seasons a Mets starting pitcher has had. And you guys remember Glavin when he was north of 40. He was good, and he stepped up. Uh, Cologne is every bit that, and maybe better. So it's quite interesting how Cologne's regiment, a very simple regiment of going out, pitching every five days, and then waiting for the next five days, and he's not exactly in great shape, is something that is right under the Mets' nose, and they're not using. But again, I'm the junior pitching coach. What the heck do I know? Anyway, we're out of time. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. I want to thank Joe Janis for uh, spending some time with us. Go to FixingPitchers.com, at FixingPitchers on Twitter. Of course, you can check out the show all the time on MetsamorizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And uh, as always, be here on Sunday. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Have a great rest of the weekend. See you next week.